Well, we are in part three of this short three-part series that we're calling Anchored. And why this series, why this study is so important is because we are in the middle of a season of life, maybe all of 2020, where every time you look, every month, sometimes every week, there are circumstances and events that feel like violent storms that are coming into our lives. And when there's a storm, when there's a storm on the waters, when there is a storm in our lives, those storms have the power to push us around. They have a power to get us off course in our life. And ultimately, if we're not ready for a storm, it has a power to drown us whether that be emotionally or spiritually. And so this series is one in which we're really talking about how do we anchor ourselves proactively so that we are able to not drift into danger. And the the anchor that we've been talking about, the anchor that is um, powerful enough to withstand these storms, uh, as you've heard over the first two weeks, is this. It's, It's the gospel. Gospel is a churchy word. Uh, It means good news in the Greek, but what it's referring to when it comes to Christian circles, it's the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the news that Jesus loved you and I enough to come to this earth, to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the the death we deserved so that we don't need to fear death for eternity. And then that he gives us a new purpose, a new outlook, a new lease on each day and on our lives. And so what we've been looking at are some things that are like anchoring points to the gospel, some things that anchor us to the gospel, which is that anchor. And in week one, Pastor Matt got us started by uh, talking about how God's word is an anchor point to the gospel, that we live in a world that is filled with lots of messages. We get messages from all over on our phones all day. There's messages that are coming at us. And the truth is, So many of them are half-truths or outright lies or have the wrong perspective. When we get into the word on a regular basis, we are able, as Matt had said, to cut loose the lies and to find ourselves anchoring ourselves to the truth of Jesus and the truth of who God really is. And that's why daily time in the word, a daily anchoring to the gospel, there's nothing better that we could do to help withstand the storms that we're in. And then last week, I talked about how we live at a time where increasingly people are focused on themselves and what they want. And you better not argue with me because I want what I want, no questions asked. And in a season like this where people are getting increasingly selfish, it can be easy to feel as if we're not loved or we've been forgotten. And maybe even sometimes in this season, we felt forgotten by God. But when we come to communion, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we've got communion. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are having a meal with God himself. It's a special, miraculous meal where Jesus comes to dine with us. And he tells you, you are mine. I love you, 
in a special, tangible way. Well, this week, this third week, um, we're going to focus in on something that many of you in the room and online have experienced in your life, or some of you, maybe it was a really long time ago. For others of you who are in the room or online, after we're done today, you might have questions about how you could experience this same thing. What we're going to focus on today is baptism. The blessing and anchoring point of the gospel, which is baptism. And in order to get this discussion going today and and to really get at the the key, I guess, blessing of baptism, what I want to start out by doing today is talking about this, by talking about identity, a discussion about identity. And before I get into it, I do need to give a special thank you uh, to a good friend of mine who also happens to be uh, Pastor Matt's brother, um, Jason Ewart. He's a pastor in Wisconsin, and he helped really for me to frame this opening part about identity. Um, what, what Jason said is that almost everybody who's ever lived have had a couple questions that they've wrestled with in their lives. They happen to be um, your first two fill-ins. The questions around identity of who am I and do I matter? Who am I? Who am I at my core? And do I have value? Do I really matter? Now, what we're going to be focusing in on for a little bit right here at the beginning is that there are different voices out there that inform our answers to those questions. That depending on who you listen to, you might have a different answer to these questions. So what we're going to focus on is this. Who gets to decide the answer to those first two questions? And you know as well as I do that there are a lot of different influences and voices that speak into these questions. And sometimes it depends, really, what age you are. So as an example, when you were a kid, pre-middle school, more than likely, the influence or the voice that spoke most into these top two questions of who I am and do I matter were most likely your parents. That they were the voices that mattered the most to you. And depending on the home that you grew up in, you felt either really good about yourself or possibly not so good. Because our parents were that voice that that told us that we're special, that we're loved, that we're valuable, that we're safe that we're pretty. Or depending on the home that we grew up with or the childhood experience that we had, our parents might have given us a different feeling about ourselves and we may have come away from childhood um, feeling like a disappointment or a failure or a burden. And the thing is, these formative years, these, these childhood years, what our parents said about us or made us feel about ourselves. In fact, even if you are well into adulthood like I am, those types of voices can really stick with us for our entire lives. But here's the thing. As you get into middle school and especially into high school, the truth is, is that we begin to 
care not quite as much about what our parents think about us, and that's not always a good thing. But, you know, if your mom says or your dad says, you are awesome, and all the kids at school don't think that way about you, you tend not to feel so awesome. Or if your, your dad says to you, you are so pretty, but the boy you really like in high school doesn't feel that way, you're probably not going to feel very pretty because in those years, you know what the voice is that speaks the most into our lives? And this sometimes is into adulthood a little bit too, but is our peers. And I don't know if your high school was anything like my high school. This was a long time ago when I was in high school, but it was easy to get put into categories to receive labels, whether that be how you look or what you are good at. And and those labels kind of stuck with you throughout high school. You were given a label based on whether you were good at sports or not, or whether you were good academically, or whether you weren't good academically. There were labels for those who got into trouble a lot, or for those who wore baggy clothes. Um, There were labels for those who were popular, and there was categories and labels for those who weren't popular. And the truth is that those peer voices were strong in our lives and in our hearts during those years, and it sometimes made a difference between a great high school experience and a bad one. Well, thankfully, we didn't stay in high school forever. But as we grow up, there's other voices into adulthood, and I think the next one I would categorize is society. Societal standards, societal norms tend to tell us or influence how we feel about ourselves and whether we're valuable. And there's different things. Sometimes it's how much money you make. Sometimes it's, it's what kind of house you live in or what neighborhood you live in. Sometimes it's the car that you drive or whether you're married or not or whether you have, are able to have kids or not. But society so often speaks into our value. And then... Over the last 10 to 20 years or so, there's been kind of a a new movement where young people have kind of pushed against the world and society, putting us into any box or putting any label on us that we're, we're all different, we're all unique, and in some ways, that's a good thing. But here's where it's not so good, is that where people have turned to instead to find value, to hear who I am is myself. That you and I, that you have the opportunity to label yourself. And so here's what we need to do. We we need to find who we are. We need to listen to that little voice inside of us that we need to spend our lives determining who we are. And don't let anyone tell you that's not who you are. And so we live in a, in a time period, in a time frame, where there's a lot of confusion about identity. I mean, in 21st century America, even gender is not a fact, we're told, but instead something that a person can choose. Because it's all up to you about who you think you are and whether you have value or not. I don't know that I've ever quoted um, that famous singer, Miley Cyrus, before in a sermon. 
But she kind of shared her take on identity when she said this, that identity has nothing to do with any parts of me or how I dress or how I look. It's literally just how I feel. You can just be whatever you want to be. And while that might sound very freeing, that you do you, you decide who you are, psychologists tell us one after the other that there's a lot of problems with this type of thinking. In fact, there's 10 or 12 different things one article shared. I'm just going to share two that make this type of thinking that we're inundated with very difficult. The first is, is if you do you, if you decide who you are and what your value is, what's going to happen is it's going to be very unstable, your identity. Because think about it. Not only do how you feel about yourself change over time, but sometimes at the very same time, you feel a couple different things that are diametrically opposed to each other. For instance, like, I, I really would like to be in shape but I'd also really like to every morning eat three glazers from Quick Trip, okay? Both of those things we find to be important to us, but they're diametrically opposed to each other, or maybe something a little more serious. I value being a family man or a family woman and prioritizing my family, but at the very same time, I'm driven to be a career person, and to be successful at whatever job I might be at. And you've got these two identities that you both want to go after, and yet because they're in conflict with each other, you're not sure who you are. The other thing, when it's up to you and me to establish who we are that happens, and we see this in our world right now, our culture, is that our identity becomes very fragile and there gets to be a lot of emotion around it. I think that this inner finding of who we are and what our identity is, is one of the reasons why debate and conversation in our 21st century America is almost impossible to do without people getting ticked off. Because here's what happens. We spend time determining internally who we are, and sometimes it takes a while, takes years. Then when we bring that out into the open, it's not just my opinion, it's my very identity. And if someone disagrees with me, well, you can't disagree with my identity. And there gets to be so much anger and so much emotion around this. All of those voices that we went through, truth is, all of them fail. None of them are the right thing to listen to. And so the question still remains, who are you? I want to know. It's an important question that all of us would be better to have the answer to. And here's the amazing thing that I've discovered as I've had a chance over my life to just think through this more and more. I don't know if there's anything that is better and more direct in establishing your identity than the act of Christian baptism. That baptism is the greatest thing to go back to, to think about, to understand, 
that points us directly to what our identity is. It's this um, act where a pastor or a parent or a relative will take water and either sprinkle it on someone's head or, or maybe immerse them all together in the water and to say these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just a ritual. It's not just a a sort of marking of a, a new season of life. There's so much more that goes into baptism. And what I want to show you is how it so beautifully establishes who we are in a world where so many people are confused. So to do that, we're going to turn to a letter that a pastor wrote in the first century. Um, It's a, a name we hear a lot around here. His name was Paul. And Paul had an interesting dichotomy of identity throughout his life, too. If some of you um, might remember that when, uh, in his formative years, uh, he probably would have most identified with the label Pharisee and his purpose in life, what he was passionate about was exterminating Christians and persecuting them. But then he had an opportunity to be in the very presence of Jesus. He had a conversation with Jesus, and everything changed from there. He became one of the greatest missionaries, Christian missionaries that's ever lived, and he wrote parts of the Bible as the Holy Spirit inspired him. Well, in a letter that he wrote to a pastor, a young pastor that he was mentoring, his name was Titus, he he wrote about identity and about baptism. It started out this way. Titus chapter three, Paul writes, at one time, not just me, Paul, but we, as in all people, we too, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul thinks back to a time in his life, and he says this is true of all people, that at one time the activities that we could most identify with were being foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Why was that the case? Paul says because we were enslaved. We were unable to do anything else. Um, I was thinking of enslaved and thought about my senior year of high school. Um, We had this fundraiser, maybe your high school had one like it too, where uh, underclassmen could uh, spend some money to purchase a senior for the day to basically do whatever they wanted that senior to do for them. Usually it happened to be, you know, carrying books and all that kind of stuff, maybe giving piggyback rides, whatever it might be. Um, the, the person who purchased me um, got an old dress from their grandmother's, I think it must have been cedar closet because it smelled like mothballs, like something furious, and then made me wear high heels all day. And, and I had no choice. I was enslaved by this underclassman who purchased me. I had to do what she wanted. And the thing is, when we were born, it was very much that way. That even though we didn't maybe mentally understand it or realize it, the Bible makes it quite clear that when we were born, we lived according to our sin nature all the time. Sometimes we call that original sin, that when it comes to pleasing God, 
It was impossible for us to do that. Oh, sure, we could do some things that were good in the eyes of the world, but when it comes to pleasing God the way he wants us to live, we were, it was impossible for us to do that. And if you wonder about that, you and I know that that sin nature still exists in us, doesn't it? Because there has been more than one time where we've wanted to make good changes, where we've wanted to follow Jesus closer, where we wanted to be better as a husband or as a wife or as a follower of Jesus. And what happens? We, we might do better with the Holy Spirit's help, but we never are perfect. The good we want to do, that we don't do. And yet the evil that we don't want to do, it seems like that we keep on doing. It wasn't a great picture. Our identity, if using these adjectives, wasn't great But there's hope. The very next verse, Paul writes, but change of thought, change of direction. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he. What is the kindness and love of God? It's not a what, it's a who. The kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. The epitome of God's love for sinful, foolish, disobedient, deceived people was the fact that Jesus, God's son, decided to come to earth. And I am still baffled by the love of an almighty God that would decide to take on human skin and bone. Just for Jesus being here was an amazing, humongous sacrifice, God's son taking on flesh. But then, but then he would live for us. He would die for us. And in victory, he would rise for us as proof that someday you and I will live forever as well. An amazing act of love and kindness Jesus was. And he came here not just to point out our flaws, not just to make our earthly life better. That isn't why he came at all, but he came to save us. He saved us, the verse continues, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. What was our identity on our own? Deceived, disobedient, foolish. We were enemies of God. He saved us not because he loved our identity. He saved us because of his mercy, because he decided to give us something we did not deserve. Our second fill-in, so... Jesus saved you in spite of your identity. Jesus died for you in spite of who you were. Jesus saved you in spite of who I was. The kindness and love of God, our Savior, and that is the central truth, the central message of the Bible, that Jesus gives us that which we don't deserve. But then Paul links it, that saving work, to baptism. Verse five, he says this. He saved us through 
the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This word, washing of rebirth, it is a direct inference towards Christian baptism. And and I want you to, first of all, understand, and you probably know this, that there are differing thoughts about baptism throughout America and in the world. Some look at it as something that we do to, to show God our faith. But in this phrase, washing of rebirth, what I see, maybe you do too, I hope, I see action. I see power. I see a a washing that gives someone a new life, a washing that allows you to be born again, to experience a new life, a rebirth. Now, I want to point out something, that this power of baptism only happens through Jesus Christ. Baptism has no power on its own. The only reason baptism has power is because it connects us to the work of Jesus, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, who died for us and saved us because of his mercy. Baptism is not some good luck charm. It's not something that has power on its own. There's no such thing as holy water. Baptism is just something that connects us through the Holy Spirit to Jesus' saving work on the cross. We talk about it this way, that the Holy Spirit works through baptism and he is able, the Holy Spirit that is, to create saving faith in even the heart of a child through the Holy Spirit's work in that sacrament, in baptism. And so through that faith, we receive forgiveness. It's like our sins are Washed away by what Jesus did. It's amazing. God uses water, that, that washing element that we use in so many other places as symbolic of the washing that's going on in our hearts and in our lives. And then he gives us a new birth. He, he gives us um, a new family. That we have our earthly father, And then through baptism and through faith, he gives us a heavenly father who loves us even more. But what about our identity? Paul continues. So that having been justified, having been declared no longer guilty of sin through grace, through love, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. In order to be an heir of someone, 99.9% of the time you need to be a relative or a child of that someone. And so what Paul is saying to Titus is through this washing of rebirth, You're becoming an heir of God. He's giving you eternal life. He's giving you a new family. He's giving you a new identity. Through Jesus and through baptism, your new identity is this. Your new identity is a child of God. And there is no greater, no better identity that you could 
ever, ever have. I want you to go back to time when you were a kid. And for many of us, we thought that there was no one bigger, no one better than dad. My dad can beat up your dad type of thing, right? And, and I remember growing up for a while in El Paso, Texas, which, uh, in case you didn't know, is not the safest place to live in all of the country. And um, as I grew up a little bit, I kind of started to get a, a feeling for that. And so when my dad was at meetings at nights, I'd, um, I'd get, a, as, the, as the oldest child, just a, a little bit nervous about our safety, <laughs> a lot of just anxiety that I didn't need to have, but that's where I was anyway. That's where my heart and mind was. And I still remember when my dad came home, the, the signal that dad was home was hearing the garage door open. I've talked about this before in, in a message. And as soon as I heard that garage door, I knew dad was home and I could sleep better. Because there's something about having the comfort and the presence of dad Guys, that's what we receive as children of God. We have the best dad, the most loving father, and even in seasons where it's a little bit scary, knowing that dad is with you should and can give us a fuller feeling of safety. As our dad, he loves us. He provides for us. He guides us. Sometimes he disciplines us. He always listens to us. And as I said before, he loves us immensely. There is no greater, no greater identity than that of being a child of God. So we started with uh, three different questions or three questions at the beginning. Who am I and do I matter? Who am I? Well, baptism says that I am God's child. Do I matter? Well, Jesus died on the cross for me. I must have immense value. Who gets to decide? Well, let me show you why God gets to decide who you are and whether you value a few centuries before Paul wrote, before Jesus was on earth, there was a prophet in the Old Testament named Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote this. He wrote, but now this is what the Lord says, children of Israel. This is what the Lord says, children of Abraham. He who created you, Jacob, it was a, a word for the children of Israel. He who formed you, Israel, another word for the children of Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Do you know who has the right to label something? The manufacturer does. The person who invented or created whatever it is, they have the right to stick that label on it and call it whatever they want to call it because they created it. Do you know who has the right to give value to something? The one who purchased it. 
You see, the creator can set a value, but it's only as valuable as what someone's willing to pay for it. Do you know that God is both the manufacturer and the purchaser of our lives? That's what Isaiah says. He's the one who created us. He made us. He made you just the way you are. He gave you your gifts. He gave you your talents. He's the creator and he's also redeemed you. That means through Jesus, he purchased you. He bought you. He said, you're so valuable to me that I would send my son Jesus to die for you. See, there's lots of different voices out there trying to tell us who we are or how valuable we are. But our peers don't have that right. Societal norms don't have that right. You don't have that right. Even our parents truly don't have the right to label us. If you're a Christian, we recognize that it's only God, (laughs) number four, only God has the right to determine your value and your identity. He is the manufacturer. He is the purchaser. He is both. He is the one and he alone who establishes your identity. You know, if, if you feel worthless sometimes, guess what? Your opinion, your vote doesn't count. If the people at work think you're just just an awesome person, in many ways, guess what? Their vote doesn't really count. If you feel like you're unsuccessful or haven't really done with your life what you'd like to do, guess what? Your vote doesn't count. The only person that can establish identity and value is the one who created you and the one who purchased you. And he created you wonderfully. The price that he paid was the life and death of his son. You are valuable. You are a child of God. So how do we live in that baptismal grace every day as we close? What's our application? You know, it's, it's kind of different because with God's word, the Bible, our application is, you know, go home and read the Bible every day. With communion, we, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper for some of us hundreds of times throughout our lives. I can't tell you to go home and go be baptized every day. It happens one time. But that's all that was needed. And so on a daily basis, in a world that tries to label you and to call you names and to determine whether you're successful or not, using gauges that, frankly, aren't really that important, we could do nothing better than to every day and every morning. Let's consider our baptism.
Have you been baptized? And if the answer is yes, you've experienced a washing of rebirth. You were born again. And while we still struggle sometimes with that sinful nature, and we certainly are not perfect children of God, when God sees us, he only sees his son's perfection. And because of that identity, there's peace. There's confidence, even in the midst of the greatest storms. And there's an anchoring to something that nothing in this life or no person in this life could ever take away. So every day, think about your baptism. Be reminded of who you are by the only voice that really counts, our gods. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are blessed to be able to call you dad. On our own, it's not a title that we have been able to say. But even in, when we were deceived and foolish and disobedient, in your mercy, the kindness and love of God appeared, your son Jesus, and you saved us. You changed us. You gave us hope and you gave us a future. And Lord, May I drown out all of the different voices that want to label me. May I be reminded there's only one voice that counts. And may I live in the confidence of my identity as your child every single day. We pray this all in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.